0: Good. Just as I preach, if I feel like you guys are lulling off, I may throw an extra one of those in there. So, so pay attention. Uh, you don't want to be the person lagging behind on He is risen indeed. Listen, this, the scriptures record for us the history of that first Easter morning. Right. The, the story is accounted for us in the Bible of what happened on that first Easter morning. Early in the morning, we're told that Mary and some of the ladies gathered and went to the tomb Because there hadn't been time to prepare Jesus' body properly. And so they wanted to go and uh, we were told they brought uh, ointments and and fragrances and things like that. But when they get there, when they arrive at the tomb, the stone is rolled away. And and out of shock and and awe, they run and they they go and tell the other disciples. And Peter and John come back with Mary and, and they too see that the tomb is empty. But they go in. And when they look in the tomb, they see the burial cloth of Jesus neatly folded on the the slab where his body had been laid, And and, and they they return home. It says they believed. What they believed, we're not really sure. Maybe they believed that Mary and and, and the ladies were were being honest and they now believe that the tomb was empty. Or maybe they started to believe that something significant had gone on that morning. Nonetheless, we're told that after Peter and John return back to the rest of the disciples, Mary remains at the tomb weeping, weeping that her Savior's body is gone. Overcome by grief, she's there weeping until she hears someone call her name. Mary. Mary. She turns around, there's Jesus. And and, and she is the first person to see Jesus back from the grave, the resurrected Savior, And she's the first person recorded in the Bible who goes on a missionary journey to tell others that Jesus is alive. There's something to celebrate in the story of Easter, this new life, this transformation. We've got this tomb, the empty tomb over here that Donna made, but also we have a decoration on the cross, these these butterflies that have been decorated by our children in the children's ministry and our youth. And... These butterflies are a great example of the transformation that happens because Jesus is alive, because he's come back from the grave. And so we remember that in the days that followed, it wasn't just Mary and the disciples that were struck by meeting the Savior arisen and alive, but over 500 people who had seen him post-resurrection, and their lives were forever changed. I think those stories are the stories that plant the resurrection of Jesus firmly in the the footing of history. It really happened. But also in those days, in addition to those people that did believe that the resurrection happened, there were those who didn't believe Maybe not even necessarily because of the circumstances around Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. But, but because of the culture they'd grown up in, they didn't believe that resurrection was possible. That when the, the human body dies, it dies. And so there were people that genuinely struggled with the resurrection of Jesus. To those people, Jesus was a kind man. He was a good man. He was a good teacher. He said some good things. But here's the thing, without believing in the resurrection, without believing that Jesus came back from the grave, they weren't really followers of Jesus. I think that there's probably a lot of us that that have kind of grown up in the church, or we've been around the church, or the church has been a part of our world, and, and we like some of the things about Christianity, and that's great. But the question that's before us today is, what do you believe happened that first Easter morning? Do you believe that Jesus rose from the grave? See, without believing the resurrection, people weren't really following Jesus. They believed some of the things he had to say. But, but the resurrection was kind of like the limit, the ceiling in their belief. They weren't going any higher or further with Jesus. They weren't going to journey along with him beyond the grave because they didn't think that Jesus' story extended beyond the grave. So consider this, think about this. If Jesus had never defeated death and come back to life, then then what is Christianity? Christianity is ultimately a a meaningless exercise in morality. It's just saying, hey, I, I like the way morality plays out in that religion, in that worldview. It's not actually saying I embrace all that Christianity is. The resurrection is foundational to the Christian faith. So thanks be to God, Jesus has risen. He is risen. risen. Yeah, nice, good. I'm going to put that out there early, pepper it in. Good job. Church, this morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which isn't necessarily a, a traditional gospel narrative around the resurrection of Christ, but absolutely has everything to do with the resurrection of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read the passage for us. It's in the middle of the chapter. It'll be on the screen. You're welcome if you uh, use your Bible on your phone. You can pull that out and use it there uh, if you want. There's, there should be Bibles in the seat in front of you. You could grab one of those Bibles. Or if you brought your own, you can follow along. As I read for us from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 28. Paul writes this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for, for sending your son, for the fact that he rose from the grave. Lord, in your word this morning, we pray that we would clearly hear your voice, your, your desire, your will for, for the people of this world. That we would hear not just your righteous judgment, but also your gracious forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. Give us the hope that we hear Paul talking about here in 1 Corinthians 15, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know if you've thought about this, but what if the Corinthians were right? What if what the Corinthians had believed was right, that, that Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead? Well, then Christianity would be meaningless, right? If, if we were to believe that, along with the Corinthians, that, that Jesus never rose from the grave, then what are we doing here, right? I mean, are really our good acts, our uh, uh, inclusion in, in a part of a bigger community really that meaningful in the span of eternity, No, the question is, do we believe that Jesus' resurrection was true and real? And if it is, does it provide meaning to our lives? Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And so we don't have to worry about what will happen to us when we die someday, right? There's this truth that he's affirming that that Christ has risen from the grave, and that gives us hope in tomorrow. Church, this is important for us to understand this morning, because just as Jesus' death has implications on our salvation, so his resurrection, his rising from the grave, has, has implications on our own death and resurrection. How many of you are familiar with, uh, with if-then statements? Students, you, you probably are familiar with them from class, from math, right? If this, then that, right? Well, if, if you work overtime, then you'll be paid for it, right? You'll be paid time and a half. That's an example of an if-then statement. Or how about this? If I don't preach too long, then your Easter dinner won't burn. <laughs> if this, then you can assume that. If Christ was raised from the dead, then we too will be raised from the dead. As simple as that, church. If Christ had been raised from the dead, then we too will be raised to life with him. Jesus' resurrection is the foundation of Christianity. It's, It's the reason we can be confident in our own future in what lies ahead for us. Paul talks about it as being the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, rest assured, he's not talking about some holy nap here. Paul is using a metaphor to make it clear that our future resurrection is a sure thing. It's it's an absolute. There's no doubt, no question that if Jesus was raised from the dead, so too will all those who belong to him see the first fruits of the harvest were a guarantee of the coming harvest it was kind of like a guarantee of what was to come these first fruits are are brought in they were brought in and and presented before the people as a symbol of the rest of the harvest that was ready to come during the harvest festival the harvest arrival was imminent you know that that idea it's coming there's no question it's just a matter of time They weren't being given a promise to pay. It's not like an IOU where you have this debt that you owe and someday it will be paid. There's this confidence that in recognizing Jesus as the first fruits of the harvest, the harvest is about to come. This new life, this resurrection is about to come in seeing Jesus come back from the grave. There should be no doubt in the mind of the people when the first fruits are presented that the harvest is gonna be coming soon. My uh, first job growing up was at an apple orchard. We, we grew up in upstate New York and uh, our neighborhood was right next to an apple orchard. And so I would go and uh, my first job, I think at 14, 15 maybe, I worked at an apple orchard. And you know, there are different jobs you do. You start by sweeping and, and stocking and you, you they send you out in the field, you learn how to rake out from underneath trees the debris. Eventually you get to a point where you can sort apples, right? Well, my first job at the orchard after I'd kind of gotten through the sweeping and the, the raking out from underneath the tree was to help sort the apples after they'd been cleaned. And we knew that when the golden delicious apples arrived, we knew that the rest of the harvest was coming. Why? Because, at least for our orchard, the golden apples were the first fruits that were ready in the harvest. So when, when we were there in the shop and we saw the, the first container of golden delicious apples come in, we knew it was time. We knew what was coming. We knew that the rest of the apples for the season were going to be following shortly. See, Jesus, as the first fruits of the harvest, should tell us something about what's next. There's not this, uh, we we don't need to live with this indefinite uh, hope in the future that someday it will come, someday it will happen. It's imminent. Jesus will return, and when he does, he will raise up all those who have fallen asleep in the Lord. Our resurrection is a sure thing. Why? Not because of anything we've done or who we are, but because Jesus rose from the grave. His resurrection is key for us to understand. It's the foundation of our faith. But not only does the first fruits indicate the the coming, the imminent coming of the harvest, it also tells us something about the quality of the harvest right? The fact that Jesus rose from the grave doesn't just tell us that the rest of the harvest is coming, but also says something about the quality of the harvest that will be coming with Jesus, the first fruits. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21. He says, "'For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead.'" For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Here's the thing, church. We have to understand, there's one of two harvests that we're a part of in this world. We're either a part of the harvest of Adam or of the harvest of Christ. And what we believe about the resurrection of Jesus determines which harvest we're a part of. See, as Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians, and, and, and actually as we can read about in the book of Genesis, by Adam came death. Right, you remember the story in the garden where Adam eats of the fruit of the knowledge of of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and sins against God. He's turned his back on God, and through that, that disobedience, sin enters the world. Death enters the world, and and so Paul says, you know, as through, as, sorry, by Adam came death, and as part of that comes death to all of us. I mentioned I, I worked in an apple orchard growing up, and one of the things as we clean the apples, we have to sort them, right? We sort them by size. We sort them by uh, their quality, you know, if they're good, if they've got puncture wounds or if, they're, uh, if there's any rot on them. Well, we, we had to make sure we removed those apples, the ones that have rot, you know, even a little spot, even a, little, even a tiny little dot. Why does that matter? It's just a little spot of, of rot. Why would that matter? Well, first of all, because you don't want to sell rotten fruit to customers. But more importantly, that rot spreads. For that apple to remain in the bushel, to, for it to remain with the other apples, it, it will spread the rotten fruit to other apples, like, like cavities, right? That, that they can quickly ruin a whole batch of apples. They can quickly ruin your other teeth if you allow it to spread the harvest that follows Adam has become rotten in and along with Adam. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. See, we're, we're in this bin of apples. We've got Adam as that first fruit. He came in from the field, but guess what? He had some rot in him. And so as we all join the bin with Adam, guess what? That rot spreads to you and I. And it spreads quickly. And, 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 and yet, that's not the only harvest there is. Because we're told that in Christ, his fruit works the opposite way. As the first fruits of a new harvest, Jesus goes from death to life. From dead to newness of life. Jesus went from the grave to to living, unlike Adam who went from life in the garden to death. See, Jesus rose from the grave and exited the tomb, not the other way around. Again, in in Romans chapter 5, Paul writes this in verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life Through the one man Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That act of righteousness he's talking about is Jesus' death on the cross, his rising up to life from the grave. Through that one act of righteousness, we are led to justification. We are are, are led to being, uh, to this new life, this new harvest in Jesus. Through Jesus' act of righteousness, the Father has a plan. A plan to raise up a new harvest in his likeness and in the quality of his son as the first fruit. See, Jesus is that grain of wheat we spoke of a couple weeks ago in John chapter 12, that that it was necessary for it to fall to the earth and die, to be sown in the ground so that a harvest of of wheat would grow up in the likeness of that one seed. And we can be assured that if the seed planted in the ground is holy, if what we start with is holy and clean and new, then we too have confidence we'll be in the same likeness with that first fruit. See, the seed that the harvest is sown in matters. If I, if I start with the rotten fruit, I'm going to end up with a bushel of more rotten fruit. But if I, if I, as a farmer, start with that holy grain of wheat, then a holy harvest will be raised up with it. In uh, Paul was talking in Romans 11. He says, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. Sorry, yeah, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. As our first fruit, Jesus is the root. He is holy, and he is he's risen. He is risen. <laughs> <laughs> Slip that one in. See, we can be confident that as we put our hopes and our faith in Jesus, the, the one who is the first fruit of, of our harvest, we too will be raised in this new life, in this new likeness, based on nothing other than our faith in him. Based in him. He is our first fruit, the first fruit of the harvest. Take, take a look at verses 23 to 26 in our passage of First Corinthians. Paul writes, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You know, there's something going on here in this passage that I think would have been particularly meaningful to the audience that Paul's writing to. As I mentioned, the Corinthian culture was was uh, an outpost of the Roman col- it was a Roman colony, so it was an outpost of of the kind of world of Rome and so um, they they lived under the rule of, of Rome right and so paul's original audience would have kind of interpreted what Paul was saying in light of the world that they were in, in particular when he says that that they would each in his own order be raised to life paul's not talking about first, second, third, well, not necessarily like first, second, third, but he's talking about groupings, right? In the Corinthian culture, there were the, the social elites, those who owned land, those who, who had resources, those, those who had much. Then there were those on the other end that had little or none. There were those who were uh, disabled, beggars. They were, they were without land. They were without uh, family. They were, they were alone, Right? And, and, and the culture there in Corinth would actually uh, segregate based on these groupings, a different group, right? But when Paul says each in his own order, he's referring to a class, right? So, so when he's talking about this order of the resurrection, it says first Christ, the, the first fruits, and then the rest who belong to him. Paul's making a statement here. He, he's saying that, that in Christ there are not classes of people, like there might be here in our culture, Paul's saying the, the same thing he said elsewhere. He's saying there's no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one in Christ. The quality of the people that God will raise to life with Jesus is of one accord. That, that we're not going to be some, who, are, some who, who spend more time at church than others, they'll be raised first. Those who gave more to the church, they're going to be raised before them. And then those who kind of had really nothing to offer, they'll, they'll come, but they'll come last, right? That's not what Paul's saying here. That's not what we should expect in terms of the resurrection with Jesus. When Jesus returns, he's not looking to validate who's better than who. He's going to raise us all together as one, as one people. See, this, this would have been humbling words for those who felt like they deserved higher honor and glory, right? Jesus, I've done so much for you. How can you raise me to life with with that person over there who did nothing, right? But that's exactly what is so beautiful about the resurrection. God's grace and mercy is to raise us to life. It's not to, to, to segregate us based on our holiness or lack thereof. His desire is to raise us as one, at his coming, Jesus will raise up all of those who belong to him. That's the order that Paul is giving us here in 1 Corinthians. He doesn't say, uh, you know, when or, or how. He just says, first Jesus, then the rest of us who belong to him. I think this can be hard to accept in a world that, that determines value based on uh, our ability or our net worth or uh, what we've accomplished in the past. I know that many of us struggle to, to see ourselves as God sees us. I do at times. To, to see myself as God sees me, not, not just as I think God sees me, but as the Scriptures tell me that God sees me. I know that many of us are like the, the Pharisee in the temple, right, Who, who's praying, asking for God's forgiveness, but also thanking God that, that he's not as bad as that guy, that, that tax collector, that, that evil scum over there. At least he's better than him, right? See, many of us, we wrestle with this idea of repenting from our sin, but at the same time, we kind of justify ourselves a little bit because we can find someone else in this world who's worse off than us, right? But come on, God, you've got to love me a little bit. I mean, I'm not as bad as that person, right? So the fact remains that Christ has been raised from his dead. And at his coming, so will all those who belong to him, regardless of ability or disability, regardless of your, your resume or your, your CV, however you want to refer to it, regardless of your net worth or, or regardless of your debt, regardless of your success or your failure in life, we will be raised up as one in the resurrection with Jesus. Why? Because Jesus went first as our first fruit. And so we have the confidence that in Raising up Jesus to life, he will raise us up as well at his coming. See, the the resurrection of Jesus not only tells us of, of, of his imminent return, that the harvest is on its way, it's coming, it's here, but it also tells us of the quality of the harvest. That we too will be raised up in glory and without blemish in the same way as the first fruit of our harvest. We will be raised as one. Just as Jesus is one with the Father and the Spirit, so we are one in him, and our resurrection will be in that manner. But it's not just our resurrection that we look forward to in Jesus' coming, is it? I mean, don't get me wrong, especially as we get older, we look forward to a resurrected body. We look forward to something that works all the time and doesn't have any ailments. But, but it's not just that resurrection that we look forward to in Jesus' coming, The the flip side of the coin is not only will he bring us new life, but the promise is also that he'll do away with the darkness and the evil and the, 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 the bad that we've come to hate so much. See, Jesus is already king. It's not a matter of he will be king one day when he returns. Jesus is already king, and he's been reigning over his kingdom since his resurrection. You may remember that when Jesus commissioned his disciples, what does he say to them? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, right? The king has been given the golden scepter. He's going to rule and reign as the king of God's kingdom. So when Jesus returns, not only does it mean that he's going to bring in the the last bits of his kingdom, and and not only will we join him in resurrection, but it also means that he's going to put an end to everything else. In particular, the end of every corrupted and perverted rule or power or authority that was unleashed through Adam's reign. Right? We, we talked about how uh, through one man came death. Through Adam came death into this world. And it didn't just affect people. It affected everything about the culture of this world. It did affect those institutions that make up this world. Why? Because the people that were behind the institutions, the things that run them, they too have been corrupted by sin and evil in our, our hearts. I say they, but us, me. See, no longer will there be left any rule or authority that would, that would contradict God's own rule and authority, his own reign, his own holiness, his own righteousness and justice. See, I'm pretty confident that we've all witnessed leaders, people in this world that are examples of people that abuse authority. People that abuse the, the, the rule and the responsibility they've been entrusted. I think we've all witnessed that. But we've also all put our hope in those same leaders. We, we've also, maybe in our own hopelessness, said, well, maybe they can fix it. right? We think well, Maybe if we elect a new leader, or, or, or maybe if we change how this institution runs, or, or whatever, maybe that will change for the good. But church, one thing we have to understand in Jesus' return is that he's not going to look at the institutions of this world and say, well, they were okay. They weren't bad, so we'll let them slide. He's going to do away with every rule and authority that is of not of the Father. Every rule and authority has been corrupted by evil and, and every rule and authority that is not of Jesus, that is not of God, will be done away with. And so we've got to ask the question, have I put my hope in in the people of this world and the institutions of this world? Now, mind you, there's a difference between uh, trusting God can work in that person's life to accomplish good and, and, and having hope in that person changing this world for the good, right? We trust God can work through people and in institutions, but our hope remains in God, not in the institution itself or the person itself. We've we've all put our hope in in, in rulers and and authorities that are corrupted by sin. Our government is broken. Our our school systems are broken. Our culture is broken. Even the church is broken because it's made up of broken people, right? And our one hope, our only hope, is in the one who will put an end to all that evil, all that evil rule. And for those who belong to Christ will be raised in this newness of life, where there will be no more sickness, no more sadness, no more, no, no more people driven by a hunger for power and, and rule, a selfishness, a pride. It will be people who are ruled by Jesus himself. See, this idea of people putting their hope in evil rulers was true in Paul's day, and it's one of the things he's trying to address here in 1 Corinthians 15. See, the, the, the people of Corinth were in a habit of putting their trust in their hope in the emperor the emperor was 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 the kind of human ruler that was guaranteed to give us peace one day and 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 to to give us many blessings right and maybe if we're honest with ourselves that's a little like us putting our hope in in a new president or an old president or whatever president you want right it's thinking that that this is going to change our world for the better and again, God may work through that person. We pray that, he does, that God does work through, through those leaders. But again, the question is, who is your hope placed in? See, in Paul's day, people worshiped the emperor as a deity. They, they thought of him as the, the father of the fatherland. The, one theologian called, uh, said that they thought of him as the pontifex maximus, like what now we understand the, the pope in Rome to be or claim to be. He's this chief religious leader. We put all their hope in this human leader, this human emperor, this this human institution to get the job done, to provide peace, to make sure that that the land prospers. But at the end of the day, it's just a human leader. It's just a human person, a human being. And so what Paul wants his audience to know is that, that even this emperor will one day be held in subjection under God. That when Jesus returns, all human authority... Will, bring, will be brought under subjection to God, where God will put all life in order. Even this emperor that they've been looking to and trusting in. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28, we read this. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son of Man himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. There's this idea that God is bringing all the enemies, all of his enemies, under the subjection of Jesus Christ. That, that, that all these evil rulers, the, 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 the things that hold our lives in bondage, will all become subject to God, where God will have complete authority over them and, and, and will do away with them. And so we understand that all things will be put in subjection under God. And even though He is king, even Jesus will be subject to the Father. Why? So that God would be all in all, our everything. There would be nothing else that we would find any comfort or hope in but God alone. Church is God, you're all in all. Is your hope solely in Jesus who's the first fruit of this new harvest, the new harvest of life? Or like the Corinthians, have we put our hope in human institutions, in, in, in human leaders to fix our broken world and make a lasting peace? What do we count on for our hope and our peace? See, I think our hope is in the one who rose from the grave as a promise of things to come. In fact, Christ has risen. He risen. Amen. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> Church, listen one more time to Paul's words. Let them sink in. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. See, we have hope in our future because of today. And not just that we'll be raised to life with Christ again, but every rule and authority and power of this world will be destroyed, will be done away with. There will be no more hatred, no more, no, no more uh, power struggles, no more selfishness, no more pride that, 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 that crushes families and destroys cultures. Every rule and authority and power of this world will be destroyed and held under subjection to God. Church, what we believe matters. Jesus' resurrection matters. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, so also those who are in Christ will, will also be raised and made alive with him when he returns. So I think Jesus' resurrection is not just hope for uh, one day, but he's proof of our imminent resurrection with him when he returns. So praise God, he is risen. He is risen Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that that you have not only sent your son to, to pay a price that we could not pay, but your son also defeated the grave and defeated death. And Lord, we thank you that we don't have to think of ourselves as rotten fruit, but we can think of ourselves of being fruit that are, that are growing in the likeness of the first fruit, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we have a, a firm confidence that when you return, when Jesus returns, we too will be raised to life with him. And at that time, your, your, your peaceful rule will cover the land. Every evil rule and power and authority will be destroyed. And Lord, that gives us hope as well. Not because we have to figure it out or we have to be better leaders for it, but because you will bring all things in subjection so that you might be our all in all. Lord, be our all in all this morning, we pray. Through Jesus Christ, amen.